0: So we'd like to read this afternoon and catch you with the Lord's Day about baptism. We would like to read from Genesis 15 and then from Colossians chapter 2. First of all, Genesis 15, this is after the passage where Abraham has gone out and to war and has met also Melchizedek, who doesn't come up in the Bible again until about Hebrews 7. It's an image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we read in Genesis 15, the word of God, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Instead, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This is one you shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him. For righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, Bring me a three year old heifer, a three year old female goat, a three year old ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece outside opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you... You shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down, and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Ken- Kenazites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And then we turn to Colossians uh, chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. Colossians 2, verse 6, the Word of God. As you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in its. This is the Word of God. Then our text this afternoon is from the Word of God as summarized by the church in Lord's Day 26 of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 26 page 540 of your Book of Praise. The Catechism reads here, How does holy baptism signify and seal to you that the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross benefits you? In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing with and with it gave the promise that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly His blood and spirit wash away the impurity of my soul, that is, all my sins. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means to have received forgiveness of sins from God through grace because of Christ's blood poured out for us in His sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with His Spirit means to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and sanctified to be members of Christ so that more and more we become dead to sin and lead a holy and blameless life. Whereas Christ promised that He will wash us with His blood and Spirit, as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism… In the institution of baptism where he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This promise is repeated where Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. So far, the confession of the church after the proclamation of God's Word, we'll praise God with the words of Psalm 78, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, during this past week, my... Wife and I were vacationing close to Fenland Falls, and so our challenge yesterday was to find the road, the path from Fendon Falls to Owen Sound. How often have we made that trip before? Never. So how do we do it? Well, we had such a thing as a GPS, and thankfully, GPSs serve as ways to go through the unknown, and If you have confidence in this thing, you drive by faith to some degree. You have confidence in this faith, you'll actually get there. And similarly, if you don't have confidence in this thing, you at least have signs on the road. And those signs point you to the fact that, yeah, you're going the right way. You see this town, that town, that town, you're going the right way. Signs tell you you're almost there. And when you see a sign finally for Owen Sound or uh, Meaford or whatever the case may be, then you know you're getting there. So it puts you at ease. You know you're on the right road. You can relax. You even tell, it even tells you what time. The GPS tells you what time you'll get there. Everything is good. Well, baptism functions a bit like that. Baptism is a sign. A sign that's meant to give you confidence. A sign that's meant to put you at ease. No, baptism is not the same as salvation. But it points to it. The sign that tells you about the city coming up is obviously not that particular city or town. There's a difference between the sign and the thing that is signified. So too baptism and Lord's Supper. They are not the goal. They are some of the means to the goal. signs in which God tells you you're on the right path. You're doing what it takes to get there. And thus they are beneficial. Let's consider that this afternoon with Lord's Day 26, baptism is a sign and seal of God's promises of life and salvation and everything you want in Christ. We'll talk about the fact that it's a sign, and we'll talk about the fact that it's more than a sign, a sign and more than a sign. Brothers and sisters, it's good first to think about that passage from Genesis 15, which we read together. What's going on there? Well, in Genesis 15, we see God making promises to Abraham. That started already in Genesis 12. He called to Abraham and said, Fear not, Abraham. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Abraham was a little befuddled more often in his life. I mean, all he had was God's words spoken to him in one way or the other. He didn't have a book. He didn't have a paper guide. He had God's word. And so sometimes Abraham doubts, and Abraham does that in verse 2. He says, what will you give me, for I continue childless? You promised children, but the only heir of my house is my servant, Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham was one of the wealthiest men in the world. He had every material blessing he wanted. However, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant, was Abraham's designated heir because he had no sons, even though God promised him a multitude of children. That prompted God to reaffirm an earlier promise by telling Abraham he would have multitudes of descendants, as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. Ever seen in a dark night how many stars are in the sky? As many descendants as there is sand on the seashore. Ever been to Middle East and seen how much sand there is in that area of the world? Abraham believed the promise of God. God counted him to him for righteousness. And these things like stars and, and sand, they served as signs. Yes, God's going to do this. It's this text of Genesis 15 verse 6, by the way, God, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness that the Apostle Paul uses in his letter to the Romans in chapter 4 uh, to speak to the, 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 his audience about the Doctrine of the justification by faith, by faith alone. Anyway, God reaffirmed another earlier promise. Abraham would not only have children, he would also have land. But Abraham struggled with that promise too. He said, Lord God, how do I know that I shall possess it? So God commanded Abraham to get a number of animals, to cut them in two, and to arrange the pieces in two rows, marking out a path. What's God going to do? He's going to give Abraham a sign that he will forever remember, a, a sign that will tell him he's on the right path, the things God promises he will bring about. And sure enough, when Abraham was finished, God put him in a deep sleep and gave to him a vision. That vision is described in verse 17, verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between those two pieces. What did the flaming torch and the fire pot symbolize? It symbolized God going between those pieces of animals. Abraham saw this symbol of God, a divine manifestation passing between the animal pieces, and immediately understood the significance. God was enabling him. This was a sign so Abraham should know for sure his promises would come to pass. Offspring and land, two things so important in the ancient Near East. God said, I'm going to give you promises and I cannot swear by anything else higher than myself. I cannot swear by the mountains. I cannot swear by the seas. I cannot swear by the angels. I cannot swear... By anything in creation, therefore I swear to you by myself, if I fail to keep my promises to you, may I, your God, be cut in pieces like these animals. May I, the immutable God, suffer mutation. May I, the eternal God, become temporal. May I, the infinite one, become finite. We know that God was saying these things because the author of the book of Hebrews tells us so. It says in chapter 6, When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. What we see in Genesis 15 is a covenant ceremony that was quite typical of Abraham's time. When two parties made a covenant, they split animals, and the two parties would walk through the pieces, thereby declaring that they deserve to be torn apart should they violate the agreement. But in this case, only God passed through the pieces because He alone was making promises. He was instituting His covenant with Abraham. What's that got to do with baptism? Baptism. When God enters into covenants with his people, making promises of redemption to them, his pattern is to attest to the truthfulness of the covenant, of the promises by some kind of external sign. For instance, when he promised Noah he would never destroy the world again through a flood, God set his rainbow in the sky. That's what it's all about is a rainbow in the sky which says for generations and, and, and for millennia that God will be faithful to His promises. He was saying every time we see a ra- we should be reminded that God has promised never to destroy the world again with a flood. In a similar manner after instituting His covenant with Abraham God gave Abraham and His descendants a sign of their membership in the covenant namely circumcision. We got some serious competition today. (laughs) Circumcision had a, a dual significance. On the one hand, the cutting of the foreskin was a sign that God was saying, I am cutting you out from the rest of fallen humanity and consecrating you as a nation to Myself. At the same time, the sign of circumcision was a testimony to the people saying, as it were, oh God, if I fail to keep the terms of this covenant, if I fail to to, to you in this covenant relationship, may I be cut off from all the benefits of your covenant promises. So circumcision symbolized both the blessings and the curses of God's covenant with Abraham. The rite of circumcision was given for all generations of Israelites as the sign of the Old Covenant. Just as circumcision was a sign of the Old Covenant, baptism is the sign of the New Covenant. In a very real way, what circumcision was to the Old Testament, and baptism is in the New Testament. We see this close connection in Paul's letter to the Colossians. We read it from a, together Colossians 2. It's not a very easy passage. In a more modern translation, it says, In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. If you read this very carefully and try to interpret this, you realize Paul is implying that with coming to faith in Christ and with baptism as a symbol of that, the Colossians had received an internal circumcision, a circumcision of the heart. They received what the Jewish divinely ordained practice had always intended to be an indication of, namely, hearts turn to God in repentance of faith. That's what circumcision was, the male organ. But it symbolized the fact that their hearts would be circumcised. That's why the cry in the Bible so often, oh, you uncircumcised people, it's about their hearts. The continuity between old and new covenants is emphasized here, the fulfillment of that old Jewish practice. The Lord Jesus commanded this sign would accompany the preaching of the gospel. Matthew 28, 19, Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And so too, Romans 6 and Colossians 2 and other passages make reference to baptism. But the question comes up, what is baptism a sign of? Here it's important to notice something. The subject of infant baptism does not really arise until the next Lord's Day, so we'll leave that to the next week's preacher or whenever, but already here we have some that go off in that direction, some points. My point here is this. Those who deny that infants should be baptized, mostly they do this because they believe that baptism is a testimony to the faith of the individual. And they say an infant, a newborn infant, doesn't believe yet, so therefore an infant should not be baptized because where is the faith that it attests to? Baptism is a sign of what's in the person. Faith, repentance, forgiveness. And since that's not an infant, it must wait for later. So it serves to underline the faith of the person being baptized. But now think about that. If, if that was true, and if it has been historically true in that which was prior to this, namely circumcision, then should any Jewish baby ever have been circumcised? What does any eight-day-old child know about faith and repentance and salvation. Circumcision, instead, was a sign that attested not to something in the child but to that which would come from God. It testified to the fact that this Jewish child was a member of God's people set apart by God and would by faith receive everything that God promised to the child. Circumcision was a sign of the righteousness that is by faith a picture of spiritual circumcision, the circumcision of the heart which would come. It was a sign of the regeneration and sanctification that would come later by faith. Remember, the sign is not the same as the thing signified. A sign to Owen Sound is not the same thing as Owen Sound. So circumcision and baptism are not the same as the full reality that comes when the person circumcised or baptized actually believes. That reality will come through life, throughout life. When we listen as infants to Bible stories on mom or dad's knee, what's happening? There's faith, this is true, God says it. Mom's reading it, dad's reading it. When we attend church and catechism class, when we profess our faith and in turn raise our families, or in the case of those who are converted later in life and thus are baptized later, even there, the sign is not the same as the thing that's signified. It's just water. And, and adults are as frail as infants faith-wise, but baptism reminds the parents as well as the baby. When the baby becomes a bit older, you can say, you were baptized. And it reminds and it points to the fact that God is good and God is faithful. It doesn't say anything about that baby at that stage. It doesn't say anything about the adult at that stage but it talks about God. That's the way signs always work. Whether you take circumcision, whether you take rainbows, whether you take God's use of the stars or the signs, it's a sign not of what's in human beings. It's a sign of what's in God. Almost every time you look at it. And isn't that powerful? Think of it. How meaningful is it when you're old and doubting? You're 80 years old, you're doubting. The truth, you're facing the fact that you're, you're going to die and you, you have a hope and you had a hope in the eternal life and now you're doubting. What good is it that you know that when you were five years old or 20 years old, you believed. You believed then. You were full of vinegar and full of power and full of hope. But now you don't. What good is that then? But if you're old and you remember there was a day when God said to you, this is my word, and these are my promises to you. If you walk in these ways, if you remember you were baptized, baptism would signify the fact that it was true for you. It's so much more meaningful. In that baptism, God said He would always be with you, that you would be His, that He made a covenant with you, that His Son died for your sins and your stubbornness, that His Holy Spirit would dwell in you and strengthen you and quicken you all the days of your life. Think of what Luther said when he was beset by opposition and spiritual doubt. When the devil tried to attack him, he would say, sum, which means, I have been baptized. There was that objective testimony to the love of God and it was a source of tremendous comfort for him. Because what is baptism a sign of? Lord's Day 26 speaks of it as a sign of what? Of washing. The last line says, Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. The first two questions and answers are saying that just as you wash dirt from your body every day, Baptism is a sign that as you go through life, and it's a broken and troubled life, God will wash you from those sins with the blood of Jesus Christ and renew you by the Holy Spirit. Those are some mighty accomplishments, are they not? Isn't it good that we get a sign to underline what God will do? You got this sign testifies to the fact you're on the right road and you're going to get there. But realize it's, it's never automatic. Not with an adult, that adult, even if you profess your faith at 22 and you'll be baptized at 22, that adult has to keep on believing, keep reading the Word, keep imploring God for His Spirit, going to church, or with an infant, not automatic for infants either. Such an infant has to be instructed and encouraged and see what God is doing and learn to trust God. Where do we get the idea that it's automatic? In the water somehow? That's not how it goes with signs. When I see a sign on the road, I haven't arrived at my destination. I have to trust the sign is right and I have to keep weaving through the, the valleys and the hills and keep driving. The sign is great it helps, but the reality is more. Another Reformed Confession puts it differently when it describes baptism. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, baptism is the sacrament of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto Him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of His engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, of His giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in His church until the end of the world. That confession, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 28, article 1, Points to a sevenfold significance of baptism. At least six ways in which it is a sign. First, it speaks of admission into the church. In our day and age, we are much too individualistically focused. We approach this with all kinds of questions about me and the state of my soul. And in the biblical period, there was an emphasis on the collective before the individual, on the congregation before the individual person. We would do well to recapture that. In baptism, the person baptized becomes a member of the church, a participant in its struggles and sufferings, and an heir to its blessings. Secondly, it speaks of being part of the covenant of grace. A baptized child doesn't become Jewish upon baptism. But he or she becomes a covenant child. The promises of the covenant are his or hers. And so to a baptized adult becomes part of that covenant as well. And his children now receive the same promises. Third, it speaks of his engrafting into Christ. We are not just so many loose believers independent of Christ and and His people The term engrafting is borrowed from agriculture. Paul uses it when he speaks of the relationship between Gentile believers and Jewish believers, and he describes Gentile believers as wild olive branches that have been grafted into the olive tree, which is Israel, which is the covenant people of God. So engrafting portrays something being attached to a host that is alive and growing in order to draw life from it. In baptism, he or she is given a new identity into which he or she is called to grow engrafted into Christ. Fourthly, it's a sign of regeneration. Do covenant children need to be reborn? Of course they do. Can anyone enter the kingdom without repentance? Was Nicodemus the man to whom Jesus said, you must be born again from above? Was he not a covenant child? The very first thing the baptism form tells us is we and our children are conceived and born in sin and are therefore by nature children of wrath so that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. We cannot rip out the doctrine of rebirth, the doctrine of regeneration out of our confessions. Of course you need to be born again. Of course your children need to be born again. Will there be a new heaven and a new earth and you enter as one of those old persons? Those persons who are still old in and, and, and sin and the devil? We must be born again. If we rip this out, then what, you know what, what do we have left? We have just a Dutch-Canadian social club. And that's not a, what the church is. The church is a body of people who find their refuge and their salvation and their life in Jesus Christ and in the new birth that comes about through Him. Baptism happens not because regeneration is presumed, but regeneration is promised to all who believe and walk in God's way. And baptism is a sign of the fact that that regeneration will come. Not a guarantee, but it's a sign. That's what you want. That's what happens. Baptism is a sign of God's promise to regenerate His people, to liberate them from the moral bondage of original sin, to cleanse their souls from guilt and purify them so they can enter into a saving relationship with Him. All of which happens in the Holy Spirit's work of changing us from the inside out is signified by the sacrament of baptism. In baptism, he or she is promised enormous grace and power to be received by faith. Fifthly, it talks about remission of sins. Baptism is to be unto him or her a sign and seal of the remission of sins. The catechism is not saying that the water of baptism washes either an infant or an adult of sin in the same way as water washes away dirt, but it points to the washing of our souls that happens through the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, and the souls of each and every one of us needs that washing. Sixthly, baptism is to be unto him a sign and seal of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. The sign is not the same as that which is signified. The sign talks about a Glorious reality that hopefully and prayerfully by the grace of God will come about as a reality. The ca- confession touches, t- touches on our surrender to God on the fact that if you stay on the path your baptism sets you on and cultivate that in the way of faith and by the power of the Spirit you will live life the way it was meant to be lived by the Creator. You will enjoy a new heart that's able to choose God's ways. You will see new perspectives and enjoy values that others scoff at. In Christ, we can live a life you can never live without Him. In Christ, you can love those near to you and even those far away like you could never, ever love before. It's called being a new man, a new woman, a new boy, a new girl. The life I now live, says Paul, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And don't think this happens only when you're an adult. Boys and girls, you too are called. As soon as you're able to hear the gospel, to respond to it with faith. You're called to a better life. You're called to a healthier approach and to show that it makes a difference wherever you are. That's what your baptism is about. That's what it calls you to be. When we are baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit assures us that He will dwell in us and make us living members of Christ, imparting to us what we have in Christ, namely the cleansing from all our sins and the daily renewal of our lives. We're broken people living in a broken world. But there's renewal that happens by the power of the Holy Spirit and it's signified in our baptism. Baptizatis sum. I have been baptized. So live a different life, a better life. What foolishness it is to think that this is not rich for all of us, young and old. How wonderful that God does not just tell us this in His Word but actually shows us by this sign of baptism. It's like Abraham. Abraham, look at this smoking pot. Remember this smoking pot. I went through the pieces. Child, see this water. My sign to you of what's coming. Baptism sums up the whole of our Christian life, past, present, future, and offers it to us offers to us in it a single powerful sign and seal, it's an identity that begins with the whole body of Christ in which we more and more will find our place. It's an identity that begins with Christ into whose image we are slowly but surely being transformed, not by our own efforts, but by the gracious promise of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a sign. It's even more than a sign. The point is, we should not think of sacraments as mere symbols, that we do not have to participate in what has been called a, a Zwinglian view of the, of the sacraments. Whether Zwingli actually taught that, it would be debatable, but anyway, according to the Zwinglian, supposed Zwinglian view, then all we need to do, I suppose, is hold up some water, and for Lord's Supper, we just hold up some bread and some wine, we subscribe, we seem to subscribe to that way when we too quickly say, it's okay, I had, I had Lord's Supper last week, I can just watch today, as if watching is the same thing. The question then becomes, do we actually believe the Spirit works through the sacraments, that they have to be administered to us to be of real benefit? The catechism often talks not only about the, 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 the knowing of the sacraments, but the use of the sacraments. You have to use the sacraments. Your confession holds to another view when it says, for example, in Article 33, our gracious God, mindful of our insensitivity and weakness, has ordained His sacraments to seal His promises to us and to be pledges of His goodwill and grace to us. He has added these to the word of the gospel to represent better to our external senses both what he declares to us in his word and what he does inwardly in our hearts thus he confirms to us sacraments are visible signs and seals of something internal and invisible therefore the signs are not void and meaningless so true the catechism answer 66 answer 69 How does the holy baptism signify and seal to you as surely? It's based in part on the language of the Bible and the nature of sacraments in which the sign and the thing signified sometimes seem to slide into each other as if the two are one. Paul calls baptism the washing of regeneration. Peter says baptism now saves you. But then he's quick to add, because he knows this, not the removal of the dirt from the body, This is sacramental language. They are so closely connected. The seal is so tight, as it were, the language sometimes suggests they are one. In the Reformed understanding, well, the preaching of the Word in the the power of the Spirit is the primary means whereby faith and salvation comes to us, and the sacraments never add anything to that in terms of content, but they do serve as instruments of the Holy Spirit by which God increases our understanding, nourishes and sustains us in our faith, and confirms all the benefits of the preached word. The point is not that God somehow adds something in baptism or in Lord's Supper when He gives us a sacrament. The problem is, God gives us His Word. We're like Abraham. God gave His Word, and and Abraham needed to be assured that the Word was true, and these things would come about. Well, God gives His Word to us, His Bible to us, and He he tells us all these very things, but we are weak and feeble just like Abraham, and God says, look, I bear with your weaknesses, and I bear with your infirmities. Let me give you this. Baptism, Lord's Supper is a sign. It's going to happen. It's not the thing signified, but it's going to happen. It'll come about. As one Reformed Confession puts it, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and confirmed by the Holy Spirit to such as that grace belongs unto. To use the language of the Reformers, it, the sacrament is not a bare sign, but points to and communicates to faith the presence of Christ who is brought into focus in terms of the specific blessings expressed by the sign? By means of the sign, the Spirit communicates to faith the blessings in Christ. And the visible sign portrays. The point is the word is a means of grace. The sacraments are means of grace. I would even defend the view that prayer is a means of grace. Lord's Day 45. God will give His grace and the Holy Spirit only to those who ask Him and thank Him. The point is this. In this day and age, words are a dime a dozen and promises mean nothing. Do we have to mention election promises, for example? They mean nothing. You know that. Well, then, in such a world, God not only comes in His Word, but also in baptism it says stay on this path believe what i've shown to be to uh, you here and it will really will happen a better life a better home a better world to come forever can you be saved without these signs along the way of course you can you can get to your destination without the signs on the road if you know what you're doing you can But how much better when you have signs along the way to say, this is what's going to happen. And there's a sign. Here's a a seal. It's tough to be a Christian in a world gone wrong. It's tough to raise a family in a world so far removed from its creator. How wonderful then that we have promises from the creator, redeemer. And how delightful that he even assures us of them in such a way. And how wonderful even they are not signs that tell you that once you were a good person or once you did everything right, but there are signs of the fact that God is a good person. And God is reliable. And what He promises to do, He will do. Hope in Him. Raise your children in the, in the knowledge of those promises and be assured by way of the sign and seal of those promises. May God bless you and all of us in this. Amen.